Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 184, Henry Knox's Noble Train, with William Hazelgrove. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, we're talking about Henry Knox, the commander of the Continental Army's artillery, who founded the academy that became West Point and went on to become the first Secretary of War for the new United States. Before any of that, though, he was a young man in Boston. He was a Whig sympathizer who was in love with the daughter of a prominent Tory, and he owned a bookstore that was frequented by both sides. Young Henry Knox was catapulted to prominence after one nearly unbelievable feat. Bringing 60 tons of heavy artillery 300 miles through the New England wilderness in the dead of winter, from Fort Ticonderoga in upstate New York to Cambridge. To tell us how he accomplished this nearly impossible task, I'm going to be joined in just a few minutes by William Hazelgrove, author of a new book called Henry Knox's Noble Train. But before we talk about the Noble Train of Artillery, it's time for this week's upcoming historical event. For our upcoming event this week, we're hosting a Boston History Happy Hour and Trivia Night. All the event calendars we usually check are basically just blank at this point, so we decided to throw our own. Co-host Nikki is writing up some trivia questions, so we can have virtual bar trivia at our virtual bar. On Friday, May 15th, we're bringing the nerdiest bar in Boston to you at 5.30 p.m. So warm up your webcam and crack open a cold one. This party is about to be off the chain. Check out the show notes this week at hubhistory.com slash 184 for the registration form. Just submit your email address, and we'll send out a link to our Zoom meeting. Don't worry, though. We're not going to spam you. We're not nearly organized enough for that. Also, if you or your organization have any online events coming up, book talks, video tours, slideshows, lectures, anything regarding Boston history, drop us a line. We're desperate for events to feature. Before we hear from William Hazelgrove, it's time for a word from the sponsor of this week's podcast. Liberty & Co. sells unique products inspired by the American Revolution, and many of them have themes tied to the historical events, locations, and people of Boston's past. One of the many unique products that Liberty & Co. offers is an exclusive Candles of the Revolution series, and one of their recent introductions is a Victory or Death candle. After a success with the noble train of artillery, another of Henry Knox's finest moments was arranging the logistics for the Continental Army's famous Crossing of the Delaware on Christmas Day in 1776. That night, George Washington selected the password, Victory or Death, to underscore the high stakes of the crossing. To commemorate this, Liberty & Co. presents a candle that smells like a crisp winter morning. It's hand-poured in a blue glass jar adorned with George Washington's personal 13-star headquarters flag. Experts say that the sense of smell is closely tied to memory. So imagine remembering crossing the Delaware alongside Knox and Washington with this unique candle. If candles aren't your thing, you can also get a handsome stainless steel camp mug emblazoned with Washington's headquarters flag, or a t-shirt, sticker, or magnet with the same design. You can get 20% off any order and help support the show when you shop at libertyand.co and use discount code HUBHISTORY at checkout. That's L-I-B-E-R-T-Y-A-N-D dot C-O and use the discount code 
hub history. And now it's time for this week's main topic. William Hazelgrove is the national best-selling author of seven nonfiction books, including biographies of George Washington, Teddy Roosevelt, and Edith Wilson. Because that doesn't keep him busy enough, he's also written ten novels. He's joining us this week to discuss his latest book, Henry Knox's Noble Train, the story of a Boston bookseller's heroic expedition that saved the American Revolution, which is coming out this week. William Hazelgrove, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. When I was a little, little boy, my very first exposure to the American Revolution and to history at all was through these story tapes that my parents would play on long car trips. And they were called, uh, it was called the Fisher Price Spellbinder series. And Henry Knox loomed very large in the tape on the revolution and the one about George Washington. So to, to kick us off today, will you just introduce us to who Henry Knox was and what he would have been like in the early spring of 1775 before his fame and his uh, even the March on Concord? He was a bookseller. He basically became the breadwinner at nine. And uh, he had a very interesting education where a lot of people at that time had no formal education. So he, he went to work for these two gentlemen. Uh, in a bookstore, and they pretty much said, you know, read whatever you want. So he did. He was a very, very prolific reader. And then he got his own bookstore in Boston. So he, so at 25 years old, he had his own bookstore. It was almost like a salon to, uh, strangely enough, a lot of rebels would come to it, but a lot of Tories too, a lot of British, uh, officers would come there. So almost like, so it's sort of like a, a salon, a place to be. And Henry Knox, just so we can paint the picture here, is a very big guy. Today we might call him fat, okay, you know, uh, or Zaftig or whatever, you know, <laughs> porcine, um, uh, whatever you want, whatever adjective you want. But he, you know, he was a big guy. He was six foot. And he had a big, booming voice. He's a very affable, affable guy, which actually helped him a lot in his bookstore. And, he, you know, and it was called the London Bookstore, and he, he did very well. So he was a, a very physical guy, too, it sounds like. it. You describe a scene from uh, the Pope's Night uh, processions or Pope's Night riots where his physicality came in handy. Well, what was that all about? Right, right. So they would take these carts out on sort of like a, almost like a Halloween night. They called it <laughs> Pope's Night. And uh, they would run them through the streets, and they're very heavy. And his cart basically fell apart. The wheel came off it. And these these are very large. People ride them and all sorts of things. And so Henry Knox actually picked this cart up. And so his sort of prodigious strength uh, sort of became yeah, sort of part of his legend very early on. Also, he was good with his fist. Uh, it's sort of a he was you know he his mother had to fend for him, and then at nine years old again he was supporting everyone because his father had left the family. So he was sort of in a rough part of Boston. He had a sort of you know school of hard knocks, and he was known as, as somebody who could really hold his own. So he starts supporting the family at nine years old. Do you have any sense of how he was making ends meet that young? Uh, again, he started with these booksellers. So that's already as a nine-year-old. Yeah, he's yeah, basically they, apprenticing. He was apprenticing, and you know, a, a bookstore was much more than it is today. They actually would bind the books there. Um, you know, books would be known uh, as an imprint of that bookstore. 
Uh, they would also sell other things in the bookstore as well, uh, household items and different things like that. So, you know, he, it was only, it was a bookstore, but there was a general store quality to it as well. So he was, you know, he went to work. He, he would, you know, take the money, give it to his mother. And, you know, he was basically the primary breadwinner. His mother would clean homes and do all sorts of things to keep things going. But Henry Knox was really, from nine years on, uh, really sort of the man of the house, which seems to us very incredible. But, you know, again, people grew up very, very quickly in, uh, seven, in the 1700s, uh, especially young boys. They went to work very, very early. You know, we, we, we aren't sort of used to that. We're used to now this mode of, you know, high school and then college, and then maybe you'll go to work. So, <laughs> but that at this time, it, it was not abnormal for somebody by the age 12, 13, or 14 to have ha- already had several jobs, you know, because again, it's a developing economy, it's a new country, uh, you know, so the entrepreneurial uh, bent of America was is was much more intense than it is today. And that's kind of hard. Another thing that a lot of people have a hard time with, you know, a lot of a lot of our founding fathers and and our pre- our presidents from that time, you know, had myriad of jobs that had very different vocations that would they go out, fail, try something, fail, try again. So he's you know, his bookstore, him being this entrepreneur who takes on a bookstore, was not atypical of his time. So how old would he have been when he started when he went out on his own, when he opened his own bookstore? Uh he was about twenty-two and uh, twenty-one, and uh he started to establish that. Now he did something interesting too. Nobody had used blurbs up to then. Okay. So what Harry Knox did was he took uh a review and he would put it on a book. And people were sort of they thought this was sort of scandalous that he was, you know, advertising this way. But he started to do very well. Also, he priced his books lower than other people. And again, people uh, thought this was outrageous because uh, there was this feeling too that, you know, the upper classes should, will have the money to buy these books. But Henry Knox wanted poor people to get his books too. So he would actually undercut a lot of people in selling his books. And as you mentioned, his bookshop gave him a window into a lot of different aspects of Boston society at the time, because he had these sort of, at some point he developed Whiggish political leanings, but his clientele wasn't limited to people who shared his political beliefs. No, no. In fact, um, you know, these British officers would come into his bookstore and uh, Tory ladies, uh, uh, you know, and, and so he was a guy, though, who managed to walk the fence. He managed to sort of uh, cater to both sides. Um, you know, John Adams would come into his bookstore, uh, you know, other rebel figures. And, and yet again, you know, he, he knew sort of what side his bread was buttered on. He had to be able to sell into society in general. So, you know, it, it was sort of a, a salon almost, uh, where, you know, people would come there to be seen to, to a certain degree. And again, he was a very affable, affable man um you know he he was his uh i'm not get too far ahead but he had a hunting accident on his left hand where he blew off a finger or two and so he always kept a colorful scarf uh wrapped around his left hand because he was uh, self-conscious about it so you know he there was sort of this swashbuckling air about him you know his <laughs> hair was longish as, as of the time and you look at the young pictures of him and you know he he was a jolly fellow too you know and speaking of 
being able to walk both sides of the political fence. His eventual, his sweetheart and eventual wife, Lucy, Lucy Flucker, uh, was the daughter of a very prominent Tory. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, his daughter, uh, Lucy Flucker's father was in the British government. And he did not want her hmm. to marry this of other side of the tracks bookseller, this rebel bookseller, if you will. Uh, and he told her, he told her specifically, he said, you know, if you do this, you, you will be cut off. Now, you know, we'll cut you off. Your friends will cut you off. You'll be ostracized by society. Uh, don't do this. But Lucy Flucker was very taken with Henry Knox. Uh, she was taken with his intelligence, with his political beliefs, uh, you know, with the, the fact that he had supported his family and had this bookstore. Um, she was a smart woman. She was well-read. Um, but, you know, they really were soulmates. I mean, that's, you know, when, when I read about them, I mean, because they did have so much against them uh, to do this. And so fi finally, finally, her father gives in, even after he tried to buy Henry off by saying, listen, you can tell you what, you can have a position in the military, the British military, if you want. I'll we'll handle it that way. And, you know, then I'll make you respectable. And Henry said, no, 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 I, I don't want that. And and his daughter basically said, I'm going to do this. And so the father gave in and yeah, and they married. So how does Henry Knox develop his Whiggish political leanings? It, it's already obviously set in or taken root by the time he falls in, in love with Lucy. Where does he develop that? Uh, well, actually, a lot of the sort of swirling uh feelings of the time of the Parliament Acts and the, mm -hmm. the Currency Acts that were sort of restricting trade. And and then there was the boycotts that were going on in Boston of British goods. Um, you know, these these were infuriating to people. So people would come into his bookstore. Uh, he would catch the sort of tenor of the times uh, through them. And he also had personal frustrations because he it was hard for him to conduct, conduct business. Now, his total conversion was the Boston Massacre, which is a really strange story. He's walking back one night um, in March, and uh, he hears these bells chiming and ringing, and, and generally that means fire. So he runs to the middle of the town, and he sees these British, you know, uh, these, red, these lobsters, these red, bat, red coats lined up against these people. People are throwing things back and forth. And Knox, Henry puts himself right in the middle of it and says, don't do this to the British. Don't fire on these people. If you do, you'll die for it because there's an ordinance that if they fired on the colonists, they, they could die. Well, you know, long story short, the Boston Massacre occurs and he's right there in the middle and he sees these uh, colonials get gunned down. And so, you know, this radicalizes him, to use the current term, um, to the point where he realizes then that all this talk of liberty and freedom and a new country, that in fact, it would have to take place, that, that a separation would have to occur. He believed from then on that the only course would be for America to become independent um, from, from Britain. And this is a big jump. You know, this is this is a radical belief uh, for him. And, and so at the time, I mean, you know, to say we're going to we're going to break from this superpower and become this uh, independent country. Uh, but, you know, again, he had he was right in the middle of this this horrible massacre. And from then on, he he sees 
you know, the inevitable end is one of uh, a, a country that's going to break from Britain. Now, there are a lot of folks in Boston at that time who share his, his opinion. You have folks like John Hancock and Sam Adams, Sam and John, John Adams. I wonder if Henry Knox's experience of the early revolution, sort of before the war breaks out, is at all different from the other sort of ringleaders we remember because he's so much younger. History's funny that way because it picks out its its figures, and those figures seem to be the ones that we we get handed down to us. Um, Knox was ancillary in the beginning. Okay, he was he was just this Boston bookseller. Um, he he had oratorical gifts, but they they weren't stellar. He wasn't the leader of any movement. Uh, you know, he wasn't in Congress. So you know, among the the founding fathers or the people who we look as, you know, sort of integral to the United States being developed at this time. Henry Knox is sort of a dark horse. Um, and, and I think that says a lot for how he's come down through history to us. Um, you know, you take 10 people say, do you know, Henry Knox is, and they might say, well, Fort Knox, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, but that's about it. Um, but you know, he's one of those characters. He's, he's very catalytic. To the American mm-hmm. Revolution, and uh, of course, I don't want to jump ahead of our story. That that the catalyst that he provides will make a huge impact, and I would argue as much an impact as some of these other figures, like John Adams or Sam Adams. Well, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler for our audience that he's eventually going to deliver artillery to Boston. I think a lot of our folks will know that already, right? But I do think it's interesting to look at how he came to that point. So, again, from these children's story tapes that I listened to as a kid, it sounded very much like Henry Knox read a lot of books about cannons and then he knew how to work a cannon. And I think part of that's just because these kids' story tapes wanted to encourage people to to read. To read, read. right. But there was a lot more to his military education or self-education than just uh, reading the books he carried in his bookstore, right? Right, exactly. He actually had a a militia, a local militia that he trained with and a a train of artillery. Um, so in one way, you know, it's funny you bring up the kids' books because that's the only books that have been really written about, uh, you know, this Henry Knox's noble train. I mean, that's – for some reason, historians have sort of slipped over this. Uh, you know, and of course, I stumbled onto it when I was reading 1776 by mm-hmm. you know, McCullough, David McCullough. Um, and so, you know, Knox would go – he closed the bookstore – and then he would uh, go after after work, per se, and go train with this local militia. And this was what a lot of the young men were doing. You know, it's interesting. Yeah, Hancock, John Hancock had a militia as well. You know, it's sort of hard for us to, to get this in our heads now. But the way to fame and glory and possibly fortune was through the military. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you could become a hero through the military, you could get glory through the military. You could become somebody great through the military. I don't think we think that anymore. I don't think that's really the path. I mean, maybe some people do, but for the main, you know, people are like, oh, I want to go be a rock star. I want to go be an actor, <laughs> you know, or something like that, you know. I mean, but at this time, to be uh, some accomplished figure in the military was great. So so training with this, this uh, train of artillery I did a couple things for him. One, it sort of got his feet wet a little bit in terms of just any military training at all. 
Mm-hmm. And then, of course, working with cannons. And yes, he did read up on everything. I mean, he he was a a vociferous reader of military strategy and more, you know, all the arts of of firing a cannon. So, just for some background, I guess, what did it take to fire a cannon in the 1770s? It was very very involved. Um, but you had a, a sort of a symphony, right? It was sort of an opera of all these different guys. Um, we, we have a cannon today, but the guy walks up, pulls the thing, and boom, it fires, right? <laughs> um, but, you know, then you had uh, somebody who had to, well, let's take, you have your cannon. So then you have, uh, if it's if it's clean, you have, or let's say it's not clean, they have a swabber, a guy who comes in with a big swab, cleans it out to make sure there's, it's a wet sponge on it, to make sure there's nothing in there. That, yeah, it seems like having something burning in the barrel would probably right, be a bad idea. Right, exactly. And so then you put in the powder. You have to put in this sort of cloth bag of gunpowder. And uh, and then you have the, the cannon. Uh, actually, you have some wadding, and then you have the cannon get shoved down there. Well, then you have a guy who takes a pick, basically, through a hole uh, and punctures the bag that's full of all this powder inside that cannon. And then you take this linstock, which has a sort of potassium nitrate cloth on it. It's sort of like a fuse. And this thing starts burning. And then you lower that down to the hole into the, in where the powder is. And then bam, it blows off and, you know, hopefully shoots that, <laughs> you know, cannonball out. But this has to be all, it's a symphony on this. And then it has to be repeated again and again and again. And, uh, so, you know, that that great movie, uh, Last of the Mohicans. Uh-huh. Um, One of my I, favorites. My too. And so, well, the, the thing to take away from that, though, is when you're watching that and they do that scene where they're attacking, uh, I'm not sure what that fort was. Fort William Henry, fort William, I fort think, William, maybe. Okay. They actually, you know, used uh, these same type of cannons to film mm. that. So, when you look at that, you see those big eruptions of fire and smoke. That's basically what these guys were dealing with. You know, just these a tremendous explosions, and then you know this cannonball will go fly, flying out. So Knox is drilling with his militia, he's reading in his book stories, carrying on commerce the best he can in the light of the Boston Port Act, um, selling books to any and all comers of any political leanings. Right. As the colony gets more and more divided, and tensions grow, and then eventually, April of seventeen seventy five rolls around. Actually, 245 years ago today, we're recording this on April 19th, ah. the British decide to go look for four cannons and some other military supplies in Concord. And Henry Knox is still in Boston. Yeah, he's still sitting in his bookstore, and he's trying to figure out which way the wind's going to blow on all this. Uh, he's, you know, he's, he's ma- he gets married during all of this. And, <laughs> optimistic. You know, optimistic. and But he notices all the troops have marched out of Boston and his bookstore is very empty. And then he starts to hear, you know, what's happening at Lexington and Concord, you know, this, you know, these, these, these battles. And he realizes that the war has begun, that there's no turning back. And this is very hard because he realizes then he's going to have to leave Boston. Uh, his friend Paul Revere, same one, who makes the famous ride, lets him know that he's probably going to get arrested, that he's on a list, that, you know, he's known as a rebel bookseller. He's probably giving aid to the rebels and he's 
going to get arrested. So Knox decides he's got to leave. So he and Lucy have this sort of elaborate ruse where they try and make it seem everything's normal. And then at night, they, he closes the bookstore. And think about this. He's leaving the life he's known, the bookstore he's created. And he and Lucy goes back to his home. He and Lucy put on disguises. She puts his sword into her petticoat. And, um, and they head down to Boston Harbor. And uh, there's a rowboat there. And uh, they get into it. And they row out among these man of war, these British man of wars that are there. And as they row out, you know, Henry and Lucy look back at Boston. She realizes she's leaving her father, her family, her sister, uh, and might never see them again. Um, and Knox realizes that what he's looking at, you know, in this part of the book, as he's looking back at Boston, you know, the clock tower lit up and all, he, he realizes that he's, in fact, now looking at a, a new republic, a, a new country that's coming to, to life, and that his life will never be the same. And, and they're basically rowing out. They, they, they get out clear of Boston and he, he puts uh, Lucy in with some friends and then he heads for the colonial army on the outskirts of Boston that have sort of coalesced. And when I call it an army, we'll talk about this some more. It, it's a, well, that might be, yeah. might be generous in those early days. Yeah. It's really a collection of farmers. I mean, it's a bunch of backwoodsmen. It's a, it's uh, it's sort of this ragtag group of of people who who fought very well, um, and of course Bunker Hill will will, will is coming, um, but you know essentially there is sort of this motley crew, mm-hmm. and and when Knox gets there, um, he's he's sort of a little disenchanted with uh, how disorganized everything is. Um, you know, how it seems sort of helter skelter. And, and these men who are fighting don't really see the army as, oh, I've got to stay. They feel like it's, I'll stay and help out, fight some. And if I have to go back to my farm, I'm leaving. So it's, it's very, uh, sort of chaotic. And he ends up, they, but they, 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 they know it's interesting because they immediately recognize in Knox this ability, this sort of engineering ability. And, and they put him on building fortifications around Roxbury. So, you know, this, this is to, this is to sort of, uh, what, here, I'll set the scene here. Um, the British are, are, all right, we have Bunker, during this time, Bunker Hill occurs. And, and of course, Bunker Hill is technically a British victory, but the, they pay a heavy, heavy price. General Howe really realizes what he's, what they're up against. And so the British make it back into Boston and basically barricade themselves in. They now are occupying Boston. And so the colonials are all, the colonial army is all outside Boston. So you have a, a, a straight siege setting up where, you know, you have the, the occupying army of the city and then you have the army that outside, which is the American army now, who wants to get rid, wants to get them out of Boston, the British out of Boston. And of course, they have a new general coming in, George Washington. Washington is obviously, he's a figure who looms very large in this story. Will you describe what he was like, not as the George Washington on the dollar bill, but as he was in the summer of 1775? He was a guy who basically had been living off his wife's money for 15 years. I mean, <laughs> you know, this this doesn't really go with the great George Washington, but uh, he, you know, 
again, early in his life, he he wanted military glory and he wanted to be part of the British Army. Uh, and so there were several campaigns where he figured in heavily. Uh, some say he was the catalyst for the French and Indian War. Um, he, he had these debacles that would occur. And the British, actually, he wanted to be an officer in the British Army. And the British said, no, uh, we think you're a little deficient. So Washington sort of retired, in a sense. Um, he married well. Um, and, you know, uh, Martha Washington had all this money. And he kind of began the life of a planter where he, you know, he, Mount Vernon, he enlarged it. He had these very fine coaches. Um, he had, he went on fox hunts. He, you know, he was sort of the landed gentleman. And, and, you know, for 15 years, that was basically what he was doing. So, you know, when he became appointed by, you know, the Continental Congress to say, go take over the army, he had no real experience with siege warfare at all. Uh, uh, well, how do you take, you know, this, this, uh, city back from the British. He had no real idea. But one thing he knew, you know, was that he was inheriting an army that was woefully deficient. And uh, he would, you know, he would let he would let it known to his brother, who he wrote many letters to saying, if I had known what I was going to inherit, I would have never done this. So how does George Washington first encounter Henry Knox? What were their first impressions of each other? You know, he, uh, he went to actually investigate the uh, fortifications. So, you know, you know, Washington was a very, uh, was a man of habits. He always rose the same time every day. He always, he rose before the dawn. He would pat around in his nightshirt, get things done, paperwork and things like that. Then he'd go out and he would uh, see all his farms. And then he had the same breakfast, the same dinner. Uh, he would have uh, fish a lot of times, drink a lot of Madeira, a lot of wine and things like that. But he, he was really this man of pattern. So, you know, he was up and at him doing inspections right away. He's trying to whip this army into shape. Uh, and he was very much about creating good fortifications in case the British came out and tried to attack the Americans. And uh, so he he goes to Roxbury, these, this area, and he sees these very good fortifications. And he bumps into Henry Knox walking along the road. And there's Washington on his big white horse and everything. And in, and he talks to Knox about the fortifications and you know, in some military engineering in general. And he realizes, oh, this guy really knows his stuff. Because, you know, Knox was extremely well read about this as well as having some practical, uh, you know, knowledge and some on, on hands-on uh, opportunities to, to work with this kind of thing. So, so here is, and this is again what's amazing. George Washington would always take these young officers, these guys who had no training at all. All right, basically the whole American army, very few, very few had any experience with anything. And so Henry Knox is not atypical when he didn't go through any basic training or anything like that. But you know, he becomes Washington's sort of aide de camp, or you know, right away. Mm -hmm. uh, and so Washington likes to surround himself with these young can-do. Uh, type of officers. And Henry Knox was an optimistic person. He was, uh, we can do this. We can do this. You know, and even if he couldn't do it, he said, he'd say, we can do this. <laughs> you know, and so, so Washington was drawn to that. So you have, you know, Henry Knox very quickly writing to his, 
wife, Lucy, saying, well, I'm working for George Washington now, which is sort of amazing <laughs> because he just right. joined the army. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, but we see this time and again in the American Revolution where uh, people from nowhere are suddenly promoted up through the ranks to, you know, a colonel or a general uh, who, who have virtually very little experience. But see, Washington realized that if he was going to win this war, he had to look for ability and he had to, you know, short short circuit this whole thing of, oh, well, you have to go up to the ranks or you have to be of nobility. And that's more of the British Army. So Washington's thing was, if you have ability, I'm going to push you up. And so Knox very quickly moved into Washington's inner circle. Henry and Lucy are being invited to dinner and he, Henry's getting to attend meetings with General Lee and Putnam, all the top brass. Right. And eventually, Washington comes up with a new job for him. For us, with 245 years of hindsight, the idea of bringing guns from Ticonderoga all the way to Boston seems obvious. But at the time, in 1775, it was a huge gamble, an enormous gamble. So why did Washington decide it was a bet worth making and why was Knox the man who was chosen? Well, a couple of things. One, you know, Washington's very sly. Um, you know, he goes to Henry Knox. Listen, uh, you know, I think you should head up the artillery. And Knox, of course, is like, great. I I accept that. Uh, where's the artillery? Well, we don't have any. <laughs> and so, so really, what he's saying to Knox is, if you want this job, you've got to come up with some artillery. Now, as you say, we have up in Fort Ticonderoga. 300 miles away, uh, you know, basically 60 tons of artillery. There's actually more, but that's what he's going to take out of there. But anyway, um, and, and the problem is uh, there's no easy way to get it to where Washington is in Boston, but it's up there. Now, Henry Knox becomes aware of this as well. And, you know, Washington has a war cabinet that basically says to him, you know what? There's no way you're going to get this back here. It's it's folly. It'll waste time. It'll waste money. We we shouldn't be dealing with this. But you know, Washington slyly approaches Congress and says, "Look, I want to do this, and, and I need some money to do it." And Congress says, "Okay." So when he gives Henry Knox his charge and says, "You're now head of the artillery." Okay, great. Um, and he says. You know, these cannons are up in, in uh, Fort Ticonderoga, and I think, you know, if we brought them back, I know where to put them, and, and I think we could get the British out of, out of Boston. Um, so, Henry Knox, of course, being Henry Knox, says, absolutely. You know, I will do Can this. do. I can do. Yes, I will go do this. So, it's a, conflu <laughs> it's a confluence of an opportunity and this 25-year-old bookseller who had <laughs> very little experience in anything really to do with war, okay? Uh, and a general who realizes, you know, A, I don't have any gunpowder, okay? So this is a problem. And B, I don't have any artillery, and you can't get anybody out of uh, a, a city in a siege warfare without artillery. And and then he sees this, this, this man who he thinks – also think about this. Henry Knox is a Bostonian. And the British have taken over his hometown. So he's pretty motivated, you know, to get these guys out of there. So, you know, do the chicken or the egg come first? Did Henry Knox say to Washington, I'll go get it? Did Washington say, you go get it? Nobody's quite sure. But the, the upshot of it is that Henry Knox became 
the man who was going to go get this artillery sitting up in Fort Ticonderoga. So on the other end of this journey, 300 miles away, way the heck up in the wilderness of upstate New York on a frozen lake, we have backwoods outlaw fighter Ethan Allen and this incredibly brilliant future general uh, Benedict Arnold Mm -hmm. sitting in what had been an almost empty, barely garrisoned British fort with iron and brass cannon, howitzers, mortars, and a couple of pieces you called Big Berthas right. in, in the book. What, what are all these different types of artillery? What are, they, what are they supposed to be used for? Well, you know, the Big Berthas are big 5,000-pound cannons. So these, can, these things can lob these shells miles, all right? Um, the, 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 the howitzers, the mortars, these are basically, you know, sort of we've seen in the movies – you, you shoot them up, they arc over, and then they drop down into mm-hmm. the town that you, you want to attack. Now, as you said, this, this was an old fort that, you know, sort of after the French and Indian War ended, nobody really cared about. And so when, you know, Ethan Allen and Benedict Arnold take it, it's not that great of a victory. It's like, okay, they barely fought back. They go and they take it. They see all the cannons there, and they sort of, that's sort of it. Now, the British realized too late that they should have reinforced this fort because this was sort of the back door to America. And, right. and they could have used it, but they didn't. And so the Years later they'll try to fix that in the Saratoga campaign with mixed results. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, you know, uh at this point, you know, it's as you said, they're just they're just sitting up there and with these cannons that nobody's quite sure what to do with. And, you know, this is at a time where you said there's there's frozen lake, there's a frozen lake, uh, Lake George, there's frozen rivers, the Hudson, um, and then there's the Berkshire Mountains, all between uh, Ticonderoga and Boston. And the- So, Henry Knox gets his orders to go to Ticonderoga on November 16th, and this winter that we're just wrapping up was extraordinarily mild, but we still had snow on the ground by Thanksgiving this year. Was the decision not to leave for Ticonderoga until mid-November strategic, or was it just when they thought of going to get the guns? You know, it, it really was more a function of, you know, finally getting the authorization, Washington giving Knox some letters of introduction um, to help him along. And just you know, that was sort of the, the time they could just sort of get it together to head out and, and go after these. Now, of course, hindsight is an awful time to go. <laughs> because, you know, I mean, they're they're heading into this winter. And this also, though, and again, I have to get of our story, this also, you know, we should paint the picture of the way the British view warfare. The British view warfare is, hey, you fight in the fall, you fight in the spring, the summer, and the winter, you go into winter camp. And you, you recover, you, you try and make yourself comfortable for when the spring games begin again. Right, so, everybody takes a few months time out, yeah, time out, and just yeah. relaxes. Right, right. You know, you go to the theater, you go to dinner, <laughs> and yeah. You know, so, the, to the British, the thought that the Americans would be up to something like this uh, in this winter is simply unbelievable. You know that that they would attempt to do something like this um, is is unbelievable. And you know, I, I do want to mention too that you know the one. The one thing the British have totally overlooked is Dorchester Heights at this point. Now, Dorchester Heights is this sort of hill, this cliff overlooking Boston, and it's unoccupied by either side. Now, 
the British, though, a couple of British, you know, generals or lieutenants went up to General Howe and said, listen, you know, we should probably take that because if the if the colonists or the Americans ever put a cannon up there in Dorchester Heights, we would be very vulnerable, and so would the fleet in Boston Harbor. And, of course, Howe says, who has no respect at all, by the way, for Washington, doesn't even regard him as really being a general because to him – all commissions come from the crown. He says, if the Brit- if the colon- Americans take it, we'll just take it back. <laughs> you know, no big deal. So don't worry about it. So, but, but this Achilles heel is, you know, part of the perfect storm that will occur once, you know, Knox gets these cannons. So to get the cannons, of course, Henry Knox first has to get to Fort Ticonderoga. And it seems like he took a convoluted route. He went from Cambridge to Worcester, and then from Worcester to all the way down to New York City, and then back up to Albany. Mm-hmm. Was there a reason uh, in choosing such a strange route? You know, it, 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 it's you know when I put this book together, this was very challenging because first of all, as we said before, there was only some children's books on this. Mm-hmm. Okay, Henry Knox did keep a diary, but it was a very rough, scanty diary. It's so the journal of his journey. So you had to kind of go from his accounts, letters, and also what other people had written. Okay. So what you put together is he's basically on a scavenger hunt. Okay. Washington tells him, hey, go up to New York and see if they'll give up some of their cannons first. Okay. And, and if they do, maybe we don't have to depend on so much of these cannons from Fort Tiger and Daroga. Because a lot of people are like, he'll never do this. This is right, never – he's right. never coming Fool's back. Errand. You know, this, <laughs> this is folly. This is ridiculous, you know. and so, you know, Henry takes off heads for New York with these letters and saying, hey, if you have any to spare. Well, of course, in New York, they're like, no, we don't. Because guess what? We have our own problems. Yeah, Thank we, you we know the British are heading here next. So we aren't going to give it up. Um, and so he goes from there. He heads to Albany. Uh, again, he meets with some other people Washington put him in contact with. They're supposed to help him along here. Um but, you know, it is a circuitous, strange route he's taking to finally get up to Fort Tiger and Run. And again, the only reason I can say that he did this was, again, you know, it was sort of like, hey, does anybody have any cannons we can use, you know, as I'm making my way up? Which, you know, shows how this this whole war was sort of make it up as you go. You know, necessity is the mother of invention is sort of the mantra of this part of the war. I have to imagine that it was quicker to go from Cambridge to Ticonderoga without cannons than it was to come back with cannons. So what kind of time was Knox making uh, on the way up to Al- Albany and then onto the fort? Uh, very good time. In fact, you know, on his way out, he writes Lucy a letter. Mm-hmm. And he says, hey, listen, I'm going up to do this thing for Washington. Get some cannons. It's no risk. <laughs> Don't worry about it. I'll probably be gone a couple weeks, maybe three weeks at the most. So <laughs> he paints it to her like, this is a no big deal thing I'm doing. And of course, you know, she's pregnant. She's by herself. She's never going to see her parents again. She's with strangers and she just is not buying any of it. But, you know, he does. He makes it up there in within a week, you know, and very, very quickly he, he moves along. Now, again, because there's, a lot of conflicting information of you know how he was traveling. Um, I had to sort of ferret through what was he. He left with some militia 
from Washington, right, with his brother. Um, did he have what he would later need, sleds and oxen? No, not yet. He didn't. So he's moving along without all the apparatus or the, you know, the, the sleds, the oxen, and everything that that's going to entail that's going to really slow him down. So, yes, in a way, he's very fleet-footed. And, you know, he's writing letters back to Lucy saying, hey, New York was really interesting. Here's what I mm-hmm. saw. And also, too, you know, we have to remember, nobody traveled then. Nobody traveled. You, you stayed in your town your whole life. You know? Yeah, this was Henry Knox's first time outside Boston, from what I can gather yeah, from the book. Absolutely, he was a young, it was a young man. Astounding adventure. to me. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a young man's adventure. He's out traveling around. Only government people traveled, and it was mm-hmm. hard. Uh, roads were not good. They had inns along the way because you only go a couple miles, and then you had to stop. Um, so you know, he's he's fascinated. He writes letters back about Albany and about New York, and then he finally makes his way up to. Fort George. And he's gathering mostly people, the people and supplies along the way. And especially around Albany, he starts to put together the party he's going to need. Will you introduce this? I think there are two characters I want to make sure we introduce that he picks up in the Albany area. We have Philip Schuyler and John Becker. Yeah, exactly. Now, Schuyler is sort of the point man here who is a general. And Washington sort of said to Knox, look, connect with him. Because he's going to really help you do this. And because first of all, Knox has, you know, just to be clear, Knox has no real idea how to move all this artillery. <laughs> okay, he's never done this. Okay, right. and we're right. we're not talking about putting it on a truck. Okay, this uh-huh. is seventeen seventy five. <laughs> so he has no idea how to do this. Um, but Becker, who is a teamster, which is you know still kind of the same thing it means today. He was a man who made his living moving things. Um, and they, they would move freight for the army or for whoever. And they would do it with oxen and carts and sleds and horses, whatever it took. But these were big, hardy men who basically moved freight. So Becker and Schuyler are sort of this team that's going to help Knox get these cannons back to Fort Ty or back to Boston. Um, but, but they meet, they kind of hatch out a plan and yet there's some fuzziness of how he's going to get these sleds and these oxen and how it's all going to come together. And Knox isn't quite sure as he heads up you know, when he's going to get it still. These guys are the ones who have the knowledge. They've moved freight before. Uh, mm-hmm. Becker's moved it for all sorts of people. Um, and, uh, and, and Schuyler also does something else. He negotiates with Indian tribes to give them safe passage, to let them sort of pass through so they wouldn't be attacked. Um, you know, and again, part of the, the danger of this, and we'll talk about the other dangers, of course, but was that, you know, they, they could be attacked by Indians and they could be attacked by people loyal to the British, you know, right. who, who, who would say, you know, we're going to stop you. Yeah, Patriot militias certainly weren't the only militias in North America at the time. Half the country didn't believe in breaking from Britain. So it wasn't a foregone conclusion. Again, even while the Battle of Boston's going on, that, you know, there was a lot of colonies who had not sent their representatives to the Congress because they were trying to see which way the wind was going to blow. Now, before I interrupted you, you had taken... Henry Knox all the way to Fort George. And just to give people a, a mental 
image, Fort Ticonderoga sits on this sort of narrow strip of land in between Lake Champlain, which is this massive lake flowing up to today's Canada and on the uh, Vermont, New York border. And Ticonderoga is at the southern tip of that, or almost at the southern tip, and this little land bridge over to Lake George, which then Fort George is at the southern end of that. So Henry Knox and his group have to get from Fort George up the lake to Ticonderoga. Right, right. So they meet, they they reach Fort George, and now they have to get up to Fort Ticonderoga, as you say, go over Lake George. Now, Lake George is mostly frozen. It has a a opening, sort of this narrow channel in the middle that they're going to go through. But the danger is this thing's going to freeze over, and they're not going to be able to get where they're going. Well, now he has to get a sort of a fleet of boats to transport these cannons. And so he he comes up with all these different types of boats to do it. He hires some extra men who seemingly have the knowledge to to do this kind of thing. Um, but you know, again, he's he's making this up as he goes. You know, we have this uh, view of Henry Knox as always being with the group that he's moving with. But in fact, he's sort of moving around a lot, doing sort of advance work. Um, you know, trying to solve problems that he anticipates. So when he gets to Fort George. You know, he's trying, you know, and there's some great descriptions of Fort George, which is just these forts were like these outposts in the middle of nowhere and conditions inside these forts became awful. There was disease and everything else. And um, And Fort George is, uh, I think, just almost within spitting distance of Fort William Henry, which was portrayed in in Last of the Mohicans. If people want some sort of, a again, a visual, something to picture for that. Right, exactly. And, 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 you know, these, these crazy outposts. And so he finally gets, you know, his men together, some boats together. And now they head up all the way up Lake George and they head all the way to this, uh, the northern end. And going up is pretty uneventful. They, they're, they're pretty good. It's not, you know, no real bad storms. It seems like, you know, this is, things are going well. And, you know, and it's really a, it's really sort of a, a moment for Henry to be in this small fleet of boats, you know, heading up uh, when, you know, months before he was just this bookseller. And now he's going to get the artillery for George Washington for the American Revolution that could change the course of the war at this very early point that could, you know, get the British out of Boston. So this is a pretty heady moment for this young bookseller. Um, and so they, they get up and they finally make it up to Fort Ticonderoga. What would things have been like at Fort Ty at the time? Nick, my co-host and wife, Nikki, and I drove up to Crown Point in Ticonderoga in February this year, just to see, basically to see what it's like in winter up there. And it is cold. Uh, what would it have been like at the time of Knox's arrival? Uh, awful. I mean, <laughs> it, it was just, you know. It was this frozen wasteland, first of all, and there weren't a lot of people there. And and they're viewing Knox and these men coming up there like, what are you doing here? <laughs> and you know, they have no knowledge that this guy's gonna come. Now, now Skyler had done some advance work. He had been up there and investigated the cannons and figured out, you know, that there were roughly fifty nine good cannons. So, Knox, they, they had some inkling that Knox was coming, but when they see Knox and his men, again, they're, they're sort of 
a little flabbergasted. Uh, they aren't quite sure. And so Knox is a. By this time, it's December, right? Right, right. We're in December. And again, you know, when I had to work out the dates and the time is because Knox in this diary a lot of times did not coincide with other people. So, mm-hmm. you, you know, mm-hmm. in this whole journey, you, I, like Henry Knox, you were constantly having to sort of reevaluate, okay, what really happened and what's the myth that was handed down to history? And and there is there's just a lot of division between that. You know, the real story versus the sort of kids' book story that came down to us all. So they, they, they're going up there. Now, as you said, Fort Tagonroga is mostly on Lake Champlain. So there's this river that goes up there and also a portage trail or road that leads up to the fort. So, you know, Knox, and then when they get up there, Knox has to basically do a pitch to the men of the fort to help them and say, listen, uh, this is for the revolution. This is for George Washington. You, we need your help. We need your help in getting these cannons out of here. And, and so they, they reluctantly say, okay, but this is what Knox is good at. Knox is good at talking, okay, and, and, and getting people enthused. So he does this. Well, now they have to get, you know, Knox does a quick inspection. He finds most, a lot of the cannons are no good. A lot of them have just not been fired for years and years. So he picks the 59 good ones. And, you know, time is of the essence because this Lake George could freeze solid. And so now they have to get these things down out of the fort onto these boats. And again, and it's a race against time, it's a, a race against ice. If a race else. against ice. And, and there's, you know, how did he do it? Well, they did all sorts of different ways. They took them down. They floated some down the river. They used some oxen. They used block and tackle to lower them over the sides. They did anything they could to basically get these things down as quickly as they could to the boats. And then they had to distribute them in these these boats. So, so what was this little fleet like that Knox had at his disposal? What types of boats are we talking about? Uh, Batus, Paraguays. Um, these are, you know, and when I read about them, I'm like, what are these things? So I had to go re- go see pictures of them. And basically, they look like, large canoes um sort of like little flat barges uh but here's the thing you have to know about all of them they sit very low in the water and so when they loaded them down with all this iron they sat even lower in the water that Um, sounds dangerous yeah and and so they're constantly trying to balance them with the men and everything um and it's freezing so you know you you talk you're talking about a five thousand pound cannon and it's basically these oversized canoes and and so when they when it's time to go, they they push off, and the return trip is not at all like the trip coming up. N- now the whole tenor of it changes. Up to now, things have gone relatively well, but now they're heading back down. They hit immediately hit storms. In fact, they can make no progress. So the sails on these, you know. Bateaux and Paraguas are, are not even working. So they have to use poles to push off the ice to, to move. So they're moving incredibly slowly. Um, and, and this is, I, this chapter is called the hell of Lake George, where basically they have to fight their way down through Lake George and, and they start, some of the boats start to sink. <laughs> you know, which sounds like a bad thing in December in upstate New York. Yeah, and what, here's what's amazing: so these things sink. They pull up the cannons. I mean, <laughs> you, they don't just go. Well, we lost a few. Let's keep moving. 
Knox is convinced he needs every cannon, that George right. Washington needs every single one. He can't afford to lose any. So they go back to Fort Tiger on the road and get more men, more things, more ropes and such to help them pull these cannons up and continue on. Now, here's where it, 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 you have to sort of clarify this. They become like a caterpillar. And this will be true of the whole expedition going back. They aren't this cohesive unit of boats altogether. They're, they're spread out because some move slowly, some move faster, and they didn't all set off at the same time. So, you know, today we see fleets set off. All the boats are together. That's not the way it was. So, you know, there's guys that are way out on the lake and guys who are just leaving. So Knox is, you know, sort of moving around trying to kind of do advance work and keep things going, but he's not privy to everything that's going on. So he's hearing, hey, this boat sunk, you know, with other men, you know, at a later time. And again, this when you're putting it together, this too is part of the confusion. So they get as far as Sabbath Island. And Sabbath Island is this sort of midpoint in Lake George where they're like, we're, we're too cold to go on. We're frozen. Yeah. And, and they make a huge fire and put their feet to the fire. And, and then, of course, Indians pop out. And, uh, and again, you know, Knox's brother, William, grabs his knife thinking they're going to have trouble. The Indians turn out to be fine. They help him out, give him some food. But, you know, again, <clears throat> men are freezing. Right. You know, the, the, they're all freezing. They're, they're getting frostbit. Um, it, you know, the, these cannons are impossible to move. Uh, they set off in the morning. And, you know, again, you know, the debacles, uh, sinkings. Um, and it just takes a, another hellish day where Knox makes it to another small island further down. Um, stay, stays the night. And then he decides, and this is what he did a lot during this journey, he decides to go ahead. <laughs> you know, and and he goes ahead to Fort George and reaches there mm-hmm. and and sort of, you know, starts already trying to set up for, you know, the next phase. Now, the next phase is going to be the oxen. It's, it's going to be 90 oxen and 42 sleds. And that's how we remember... Henry Knox's noble train, for the most part, is a journey, a heroic mm-hmm. effort of getting of his tonnage over land. We right. Forget about the part where he was sailing down Lake George. Right. Exactly. No, absolutely. That and you know, but that was just horrific. Now he does a couple of things when he reaches when he reaches uh, Fort George. He writes mm-hmm. some letters. And one, he writes one letter to Lucy saying, hey, look, hey, <laughs> you know, this is going to take a little longer than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> you know, hope you're well. Um, you know, I'm in this frozen fort in the middle of the night <laughs> writing you this letter. Um, and then he writes to George Washington and basically says, uh, you know, we made it back. Uh, you know, we're, we're going to start in the next leg of the journey. I think. Within three weeks, we should have your noble train of artillery to you. Now, so that's his words, the noble train of artillery. Now, Knox is a very religious man, as most men were of this time, all right? And so he saw the American Revolution as a quest, as a religious crusade, that, th- that God wanted this country to to come of age to to come alive and be a place where liberty and justice and you know uh where a man could have a chance and and live a a full life and in pursuit of happiness um so he saw 
the revolution in those terms already, but then he elevated his journey to a religious quest. We're saying, I'm going to bring you your noble train of artillery. Well, it's a noble train because this is going to give us liberation. This is, this is going to further our cause. This is going to get the British out of Boston and ultimately allow our country to be this place on earth where, you know, the people can be truly happy. So, so he elevates it right there. Uh, you know, to a, now Washington is religious somewhat. Okay, but it's almost a practical religion. He does everything he's supposed to, but you often wonder how much does he really believe, you know? So anyway, so he's he makes he writes these letters. Now the the cannons are arriving. All right, but there's a there's a problem. There's no oxen and there's no sleds at this point. So this is a this is a real problem. Now now this and this is where you deviate from the. Kids' book stories, okay? Because the kid book stories, oh, the ox and the sleds are all waiting. He gets in them and goes. Right. But but the truth is, this was an operation that had no precedent. And Knox had contracted with another man named Palmer, all right? And Palmer was this sort of slippery charlatan guy who uh, said, yeah, I'll get you the ox and the sleds. Well, Palmer doesn't. And Knox has already given him money. and And basically... Uh, what happens is Knox gets a, a letter uh, from Schuyler saying, look, don't deal with this Palmer guy. You know, they don't do this. And so Knox is, has a situation where all these cannons are coming in. He's been told, don't use Palmer. He doesn't know when Schuyler and Becker are going to give him his sleds. So he does a very strange thing. He goes down to Albany with a few men himself, hmm. takes this, incredible journey down gets lost in the woods in a snowstorm you know just you know here here's the colonel of the artillery of the american revolution he's lost in the woods he finally makes it down there he actually meets with palmer and schuyler and 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 basically palmer turns out to be a fraud and and schuyler says we'll get you these sleds and oxen and so then knox heads back up with all these sleds and oxen heading up to and and during the way too, and again, he's sort of doing some advanced work. He's seeing where he can cross the Hudson. He's looking at very, very various routes, and he gets back up there. And so now, now the sled, the the cannons are there, the sleds and the oxen are there, and now he breaks it up into like five groups, five packets, if you will. Okay. And all the sleds are loaded up. And again, you know, there's 42 sleds, there's um, 90 oxen. This is this is the kind of a number that keeps coming down to us. And so the, the cannons are loaded, everything's ready, and in January, they head off. They're heading back south now to Boston. When I drove back from Fort Ty to Boston just a couple of months ago. I think I went through um, Rochester and Ripton and Middlebury, all these great <laughs> towns with great names in the Green Mountains in Vermont. But crossing the Green Mountains wouldn't have been practical for Knox at that time, even without cannon. So how, how was he planning? What was his route that he was planning to take back to Boston? Um, you know, he, he was going to go straight down Um and then he was going to veer, right? So he, first of all, he has to cross the Hudson four times coming down, which is incredible to think about. Uh, Hudson River is a 
enormous enormous river enormous <laughs> river right and, and up as far as Albany, it's it's open to sailing, but it's ocean going vessels. It's a huge river. Yeah, it's and, and it's and it's the vein of America, you know, mm-hmm. which the British, you know, will, will do all sorts of crazy things later to try and take and take West Point and every other thing. But um, you know, he he's heading down, and as he's coming down, he realizes he has to cross this Hudson four times, four times, four times. Wow. And here's the thing. You know, they don't understand how to pull these heavy, heavy cannons and these oxen and sleds, and they would turn over. And so these teamsters would then have to pull the sleds, take the you know the oxen off, pull the sleds back over, use block and tackle to sort of you know wrap it around a tree and, and get the sleds and the cannons back over and go on. Now, s- snow was a problem. Not mm-hmm. not the a lot of snow, but they would have that problem, but also lack of snow. So a lot of times they're pulling along in mud. So this this is another awful, awful thing they have to deal with. And as they're coming down, um, you know, they have to go across the Hudson the first time. And the Hudson looks frozen, um, but Knox had, comes up with a technique to thicken the ice where he drills these holes. And, you know, where the water bubbles up through the holes, goes over, and thickens the ice. Get it up in the cold, cold upstate New York air. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> and so, he sort of creates ice roads almost. But even still, they're not sure they're going to make it. So, here's the methodology they used to cross. Guy, Jim Becker would be holding an axe, walking mm-hmm. next to the lead sled, let's say the 5,000-pound Big Bertha, and the oxen pulling, and if they heard a crack, he would swing that axe and cut loose the, the oxen so they wouldn't go down into the river along with the sl- with the uh, cannon. And and so this is very harrowing that you know the, this kind of crossing, um, uh, going across this these these this long long river. But they do it the first time, and and everything works out. But the second time they do it, they're going across, and sure enough, the cannon breaks through. And, you know, they cut the rope. Becker uses the axe. Yeah, he uses the axe, swings it, cuts off the axe, and they're free. But they still have a rope connected to the cannon. And again, most people would say, you know, we just lost the cannon into the Hudson. Oh, well, let's, you know, go on. But now they want to pull it back up. And so they have to pull it to the shore. And in the case of Albany, they get all the people in Albany to come out and help them to pull this this cannon up. And it takes all day. And, and you know, in one instance, it takes all day just to get this one cannon back up. But they do it. And, again, he, he doesn't want to lose one. So, you know, this and, – and, again, these temperature variations are going on to the point where they have to wait for the temperature to drop a lot of times before they cross the Hudson again. Mm-hmm. And Knox writes letters to Washington saying we're waiting for the you know cold to come back, um, which you know could it get any harder than that? I mean they they have they have thousands and thousands of pounds of cannons and men and oxen and sleds, yet they have a river that is in the midst of thawing at different times. It's funny in uh, those Fisher Price tapes the 
incident near Albany where they end up christening the the gun, the Albany is presented so dramatically that for most of my childhood, I think of that moment as being the turning point of the revolution. Right. right <laughs> yeah. Mo- most people would say the revolution hadn't even really started yet at that point. They were very formative to my, to my uh, outlook <laughs> on the revolutionary era. So eventually they're, Knox and his party will make these four crossings of the mighty Hudson. They'll recover the gun that they eventually christen the Albany Albany. twice out of the water. And then they're faced with the Berkshire mountains of Western mass. Right. And I have to admit, I, I chuckled a bit of your imagery of the Berkshires and the thin Alpine air and the quotes from great mountaineers. Um, They were definitely a feat with 120,000 pounds of cannons, but the Berkshires aren't exactly the Himalayas. No, no, they are not. They are not. No, they're not. But they were a huge challenge. So how how did they defeat that challenge? How did they use technology and ingenuity to get the cannons across that mountain chain? You know, um, you're right. You know, in the book, a lot of times I use some quotes from uh, guys who went up Everest and things like that. Because one, one thing I was after with those was I wanted to – you know, so it sets the stage for these guys are worn out. These teamsters, mm-hmm. they've been doing sure. so long. They they don't have Arctic gear. They've been frozen for a long time. So now they're crossing the Berkshires, and and they've got these these cannons and these oxen. And it's slippery, and and so they have to they have to do a lot of creative things to go not only up but down. One of the things they have to do is they have to use the oxen in a whole different way. To increase the pulling power, they wrap ropes and pulleys, pulling system around trees, and they would mm. disconnect it from the sleds and then reconnect it to the oxen so that the oxen could get increased pulling power to get them up, you know, certain slopes. And then when they're coming back down, the same thing, they could break the fall going down. They would put uh, hay and things under the runners to slow them down. But a lot of times, you know, they would just hit impasses uh, where they couldn't go any further because they would hit a, a, a precipice, a fall off, you know, a cliff of some sort. And this was very, very discouraging for Knox's men because, again, these these men were used to more haul, hauling their freight, getting it done. Mm-hmm. This had turned into sort of a quest, um, as, you know, this this journey with these these cannon. And again, you know, they would spread out, they would contract. Um, uh, you know, again, they, they, it's been a long journey for them and it all breaks down at one point where they say, we're not going any further. We're not going to do this anymore. And so Henry Knox is sort of at an impasse, you know, in his, his diary, he, he, he writes about this. He says, you know, they, they stopped, you know, we, we, we were stopped. And so then what happens is Henry Knox has to talk his way out of it again. He has to get these men moving. And, you know, basically he connects it all to the cause, as George Washington would call it, the holy cause. You know, and Knox had a great phrase he used a lot, and that was, we're doing this for the unborn millions. You know, for the people who are not yet born, we're creating this country, and this is part of it. And that's what we're really doing. This is getting this, you know. And he also promised more oxen, fresh oxen, <laughs> you know, and, and things that were tangible uh, to the men. But he got them moving again. 
you know, and, and again, you know, they, they've come across Lake George. They've been coming across the Hudson. They've, they've surmounted a lot of obstacles. They've nearly frozen to death. Um, and so now in the Berkshires, which again, it's not Everest. But it's very difficult to move mm-hmm. 5,000 mm-hmm. pounds of iron up any kind of <laughs> hill. <laughs> you know? I wouldn't want to do it. Well, and, and for our listeners, here's a point of comparison. It's 120,000 pounds. It's 28 SUVs. Imagine dragging 28 SUVs across the frozen lakes, frozen rivers, and frozen mountains with nothing but oxen. Uh, you can't even imagine it. You know, that it's possible to do that. And Henry Knox wrote in his diary, he said, when he looked at the Berkshires, he said, I can't believe any man could pull this load up these mountains. You know, and again, this is a guy who'd never been out of his hometown. And by the way, he was very taken with the Berkshires. You know, I mean, he wrote about them in his diary a lot and a lot about how beautiful they were and about the falls and things like that, you know. So... But this was certainly the most difficult part of the journey. And a lot changed as they finally make it through the Berkshires. And you, you describe the Noble Train's arrival in Westfield, Mass, as being like astronauts returning from the moon. Yeah. What, what was it like for the men of Henry Knox's party as they start arriving in these small towns uh, out, out of the mountains? Well, you know, so, again, people didn't leave their town. We, we are this provincial country. And so out of the wilderness comes these big bearded men with this immense amount of artillery. And most people had never seen big weapons before. They never heard a big cannon go off. So they come in and the townspeople are all over them. Again, like it, like seeing an astronaut. You know, they had, heard, by the way, they had heard of them too. They'd heard that they were coming. You know, the, you know, news traveled quickly in the colonies and everybody knew what was going on fighting the British. And that this, this noble train of artillery was going to George Washington to save the Americans and to get the British out of Boston. So, you know, the country coalesced around that. So then when they come in, they're, they're given a feast, a sort of a festival. They're given rum. Henry Knox obliges and, you know, fires off Old Sal, one of the big mortars, you know, and it rattles all the windows. And, but people had never heard anything like that before. So, so they, they are heroes, you know, already. And Knox's stature is growing. And as they move across, you know, from town to town, each town this happens in, you know, where, where each time they come in, they're more lionized and, and the, you know, the townsmen are all looking at the cannon and measuring them and, and making predictions about, you know, what would be the most effective. But again, you know, these are people who never have seen this before. Right. And that's a big change for the men in, in the party to go from sort of half starved and half frozen, sleeping on the ground in the woods to being feasted and plied with rum and sleeping indoors. Yeah, th- yeah, exactly. And in, in this way, it becomes much more of a, a, a palatable journey for them here. You know, and they're, they're starting to see the, you know, light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, they're, they're starting to get there. They've gone through all the hard stuff. They've gone through, you know, mm-hmm. freezing the cannons going through. So now it's, it's more, these are the bennies that they're starting to, to get. Right. So even though conditions are getting better for the men in the Noble Train, the Teamsters, once they reach Springfield, that original group feels like they need to turn back. Why was that? 
Oh, you know, the original agreement was that they would only go as far as Springfield. And Knox, I think, believed he could talk them into going all the way. But also there were some regional differences. Uh, the Green Mountain Boys, who, uh, you know, had been instrumental in getting Fort Ticonderoga, um, mm-hmm. were, there was sort of like a, reg- a regional guerrilla band. And, yeah. and so a lot of the Teamsters felt like, you know, that they could be in danger uh, if they stayed with this, with the, the Noble Train, you know, and that they needed to return to New York for that. Um, a lot of them just felt like they'd gone far enough and they'd been away from their families for a long time. Um, you know, and by the way, one of the things that Knox did during this, as this pr- train progressed, was he was constantly swapping out uh, horses, oxen, men, um, trying to keep it going any way he could. Um, yeah, it know. seems like you would have to with horses and oxen that – that they just couldn't sustain that level of activity for, for too long. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you know, the photos and paintings that have come down to us show these very uniform oxen and everything looks good. But the truth is, it was very serendipitous. It was very, mm-hmm. you know, Henry, you could see him almost sort of biting his knuckles trying to figure out, okay, where am I going <laughs> to get the next horse? Where am I going to get the next oxen? How am I going to keep this all together? Um, and and it, that's what it was. It was sort of a make it up as you go. And so he hits Springfield and he loses all these men. Right. And, and it seems like, you and know, livestock, I think and livestock and it, and you know, there's a terrible thing where, uh, Jim Becker's son, John Becker wrote in his journal later that they left the, uh, cannons laying in the mud, you know? So, you know, the, all this glory is ending up in the mud. And yet again, you know, Knox rallies the people of the town, help him, um, and he's able to, you know, replace the men, replace the livestock, get the cannons, you know, rehooked up again, and then continue on, you know. Um, and again, it's 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 one crisis after another that he's having to overcome. And that's really the the noble train is really just, and I think this goes to uh, this will go all the way up to World War II, where you know they always said, well, what was it the about the American soldier? that allowed us to beat the Nazis and everybody else. Um, and they said that it was the ability of the American soldier to improvise, that the citizen soldier was used to making up things as they went, whereas a German soldier would wait for orders. An American soldier would go, all right, we got to take that hill, but you know what? Everybody's dead except for the three of us. So why don't you go around that way? I'll go around this way and I'll try this. And, and so it's that constant innovation, which I would argue started with the American Revolution, you know, with men like Henry Knox who were like, well, you know, technically speaking, I have no idea what I'm doing, but let's try it this way, which is very American. By this point, by the time he's in Springfield, Henry Knox has to be thinking about Lucy not too far ahead in Worcester. Mm-hmm. So what's, what's this final sprint like from Springfield to Worcester where Lucy was and then to Framingham where uh, John Adams would come out and see the train and then finally to Cambridge? Well, you know, Henry Knox, again, uh, he rides ahead mm-hmm. and he, he goes to see Lucy. You know, he realizes we're almost there. And so he goes to see Lucy. And they, you know, they've spent very little time together since they've been married. 
And so, of course, this reunion is fantastic. But at the same time, she also has realized that she's married to a zealot who has hitched his wagon to the American Revolution and that he now is, you know, the colonel of the artillery in the American army. She's not going to see a a lot of him. So there's that Mm -hmm. that dual realization. Um, And with all that, he has to be off because he has to get to Washington and let George Washington know that the, the noble train's almost here. And so, you know, he rides in and Washington is, uh, you know, concluding another disastrous meeting with his war council, who basically keeps telling him Washington. And, you know, I do this a lot in the book. I go between Washington and Knox, where, you know, he the war council keeps telling Washington, no, you can't do that. Well, Washington keeps coming up with plans that are on the verge of foolhardiness. Absolutely, like, absolutely. Well, the, an yes. amphibious assault on Boston across a mile of open water right. in the back bay and into the salt marshes where the men will be just cut apart by the British defenders. The idea of storming across the ice with pikes because uh, most of his men at that point don't have muskets that can fit right. a ring bayonet. Great, he's being proactive, wants to be an aggressive commander. The ideas that he's generating need to be shot down at that point. That's right. You know, and somebody once said that, you know, inside that calm, placid exterior was the heart of a wild man about George Washington. Hmm. And, and he does have that. He has this impulse to want to attack, to do the bold move. And at the same time, he has this very reticent exterior, you know, very cold, aloof. Um, but of course, you know, crossing the Delaware, sending Henry Knox on this mission, these are all sort of Hail Marys. You know, when everybody else thought, you know, we're done. We're, we're, we're in trouble here. So he kept going to his war council and saying, as you said, you know, hey, let's, let's go across the ice. And the war council is like, no, no, no. And what a part of it is that Washington is beginning to get kind of beat up now by people. A lot of people mm-hmm. are like, you know, we handed you this army. Nothing's happened. You aren't doing anything. Um, you know, half the men have gone home. Half the men have gone home. He's lost a lot of men from disease. They're starving. They don't have any gunpowder. So, you know, things are not going well for the Americans at all. So Henry Knox is becomes more and more Washington's only hope. And he, he starts to fret and say, where's Henry Knox? Well, then he after meeting with a war council one night, he comes out. And he sees a rider coming in, and he thinks it's a you know a dispatch rider, an express rider, and uh, and he sees that scarf, and it's Henry Knox, and you know Henry Knox is like I've returned, you know, with your noble train of artillery, and and from this moment the war shifts. And I have to imagine from that moment Henry Knox's life and prospects shift as well. Absolutely, uh, he had done the impossible. He'd, uh, and by and by the way, not to get too ahead of us, this is Henry Knox's finest moment, really. I mean, right, this is, right. you know, whenever I write a book, I come away saying, oh, there is such a thing as destiny. There is such a thing as destiny. You know, Wilbur Wright, Teddy Roosevelt, Henry Knox. Um, the, there are people who are meant to do one thing. And, and I would argue with Henry Knox, this is it. So when he comes back with this... He is immediately, you know, not only lionized by people, but also he's elevated in Washington's eyes and others as this person who did the impossible. 
and 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 they really didn't expect him to succeed. You know, they they his whole war council thought this was just a foolhardy idea, but he does come back and he brings with him the artillery, and this changes the equation of the war. And so, very famously, or famously here in Boston, at least, Knox and Washington managed to, in the dead of night, secretly position the, the the artillery at the summit of Dorchester Heights. And then the next morning, the British look up the hill and see that there's an instant fort looking back at them. Yeah, it's an amazing feat. Um, they use the oxen and the sleds again. And they in one night, they pull them all up to the top of Dorchester Heights, build all the fortifications. It's an amazing amount of engineering that goes in. And sure enough, it's the checkmate where General Howell wakes up and the shells are raining down on Boston and they can't believe they see all those cannons skylit, you know, in the morning and they can't believe, A, where did they come from? And B, how did they get them up there all in one night? And by the way, his spies, a lot of spies had been telling the British, hey, you know, the Americans are bringing back all these cannons from Fort Ticonderoga. And the British officers simply didn't believe him. They just said, nobody would do that. It's March. You're crazy. Yeah. Who, who would go out? Or February. It's February. Yeah, who would go out and do this? Nobody. And, <laughs> and so they, they just simply didn't believe them. So right, when they wake up and the shells are raining down, it's, they're incredulous. And, and of course, then Hal tries to send, you know, an attack force against, you know, Dorchester Heights, but then a, a Northeaster blows in. And they can't even get the, the men off the boats. And then how decides? He realizes because the admir- the admirals out in the ships say, you know what? We're we can't stay here. The those five thousand pound cannons, it would be a lucky shot, but they could hit us. And and we've got you've got to get rid of them or we gotta go. And so Hal realizes, and his whole war council knows, you know, several lieutenants wrote later, it took a little bit, but he finally got it. <laughs> we've got to abandon Boston, which is amazing because this superpower that the whole world was sort of watching crushing this American rebellion now is technically losing the first battle of the American Revolution. They're being forced out of Boston. And of course, the parade had to be canceled this year because of our stupid pandemic. But right. here in Boston, we remember March 17th as evacuation day, basically the the day that the revolution was won, at least here in New England. What did evacuation mean for Henry and Lucy Knox? What happened to Henry's bookstore, for instance? Well, okay. So, you know, after the British leave, and by the way, Lucy's parents left with them. Uh, and, and, you know, all those loyalists left left with them because they, they, they you know, they figured they were going to be tarred and feathered if, or even worse if they didn't. So it's basically panic as they get out. And, you know, Hal said to Washington, if you leave us unmolested, we won't burn Boston down. So leave us alone and let us go. And so they do. And they leave. And so then, you know, uh, Knox gets to march back into Boston. This is returning son, this hero, right? And he goes back to his old bookstore. And, of course, it's ransacked and everything. And, you know, he goes in there. And, you know... He had to have that poignant moment where he realized, you know, six months ago, this was my life. And now I'm returning as the man who forced the British out of Boston. 
You know, and, and the British, you know, when the, you know, the British had to, when they were leaving, had to look up and see those cannons. Little did they know that was Henry Knox up there, you know, who, who was really instrumental in getting them out of, of Boston there. So he and Lucy then, uh, you know, you'd like to say, oh, they could live this life together, but Henry Knox was now forever wedded to the American Revolution and to George Washington. Right. You know, and he would go on and, of course, um, crossing the Delaware, he was right there getting the men into the boats. Mm-hmm. You know, that big voice yelling at them in the darkness and the, that snowstorm, you know, to get across. And he served beside Washington all the way through to Yorktown, seven long years yeah. after evacuation day here in Boston. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then he, you know, then he, of course, he was in his first cabinet. I think it's uh, the mm-hmm. Secretary, Secretary of War. Of War. Of War. And, uh, you know, I, go ahead. I know Knox, Knox finished out his life in, I think, Maine on the, somewhere in the front, either mm-hmm. New Hampshire Maine, or yeah. Maine. Yeah. Did, did he and Lucy ever live in Boston in a meaningful way again after, uh, 1775? No, no, not, not really. I mean, um, they after after the war, uh, Knox uh, followed Washington and you know to Philadelphia and you know in the first war cabinet and such. But you know one thing about Henry Knox is he was not a good businessman, um, and he decided after he left government life that he would become this man of wealth, and he built himself a big mansion up in Maine and. Uh, and, you know, he leveraged himself, he tr- invested in a lot of things, and things did not work out. Also, too, uh, he, tragically, most of his children died. Um, uh-huh. uh, they didn't make it to adulthood. Um, and so, you know, they were they had a lot of debt. And then Henry Knox, uh, he actually choked on a chicken bone, I think it was, and he got a, a throat infection. Ugh. And that's what he died from. And so that left Lucy in this big mansion and she uh, fell on hard times and mm-hmm. had to sell it off and she died a pauper. Well, that is a terrible end mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. a family that America owed a lot to. When I think of Henry Knox, his finest hour was certainly the noble train in the fact that he did something nobody else could do, nobody else thought he could do. He was with no experience. Um, at a pivotal moment of the American Revolution, he managed to get 59 cannon, 300 miles in the dead of winter, 1775, all the way back to Boston that George Washington could, could use to get the British out and, and really change the momentum of that war at that moment. Most of our listeners are in the Boston area or around New England, as you might guess. If one of them is inspired and they want to go out and walk in the footsteps of Henry Knox and the Noble Train, what's an easy way to do that? Well, you could follow those markers, right? So that's the Henry Knox Trail. Yeah, the Henry Knox Trail, which is, you know, amazing. You can drive that whole trail. And then, of course, as you said, um, just going to Fort Ticonderoga is such an education to see that mm-hmm. fort and to see, understand where he had to get to, to get these cannons. 
So the book is Henry Knox's Noble Train, and that's coming out later this week. If people want to find out more about Henry Knox or follow you and your work online, where should they look? You can go to williamhazelgrove.com. Um, there's a whole wealth of information there uh, on the book. And uh, I also have a Facebook page, uh, Henry Knox, Henry Knox's Noble Train. And we'll have a link to purchase the book in this week's show notes, of course. Uh, one thing too, um, for your listeners, they might check my site. I do quite a few zoom presentations. Oh, great. That's great. in this, uh, this time of distance. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I usually do about a hundred speeches a year for libraries. If your listeners want to go to my website, williamhaysgrove.com, they'll see where all the speaking events are. All right. We'll make sure to link to that as well. So folks can see when and where to catch up with you. Fantastic. So, William Hazelgriff, I just want to say thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. To learn more about Henry Knox and his noble train of artillery, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 184. We'll have a link to buy the book and a link to William's website. We'll also include links to information about visiting Fort Ticonderoga and how to find the Henry Knox Trail. And, of course, we'll have the registration form for our Boston History Happy Hour this week's featured upcoming event. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop us a line and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners.